is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's the podcast series where I speak to investment professionals about their investment journeys and why they pursued a career in managing other people's money. We will also discuss how they approach the management of their own money as well as their best and worst investments ever. The idea is to find those golden nuggets of wisdom from their perspectives and experiences to assist retail investors to become better investors. And my guest today is Nick Andrew. He is the head of Net Group Investments. Nick started his career as an accountant at Deloitte, and in 1996, he joined the corporate finance team in London. In 1999, he joined Netcore Investment Bank and later became the head of investments there. And following the merger between BOE and Netcore in 2003, he became the investment head or CIO of the group, and a few years later, he became the MD. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. You've had a long career at NetGroup, and it spans more than 20 years. You're now the MD. Are you still actively involved in the investment management side of the business? Yes, Rick. Thanks very much, and, and thanks for that background. The answer is that, that yes, I am. Um, in, investing has been a and is a, a massive passion of mine. Uh, we started the business 20 years ago, uh, came up with the concept of best of breed, uh, where we look to research and identify exceptional managers around the world. And I continue uh, to be involved in looking for those managers together with our investment team and I continue to engage with them regularly. Uh, let's talk about you. Just give us firstly a bit of your background. Where did you grow up and when did you decide why you wanted a career in the investment world? I'm a Cape Town born and bred. Went to a proud Rondebosch boy who then went to UCT where I did my BCom and majored in accounting and did my articles at Deloitte. And at Deloitte, we had a, had a range of clients. I think it's one of the big benefits of doing articles when you're young and not sure what you want to do. So uh, I had industrial and engineering and manufacturing clients. I had some nonprofit clients. And then I also had a few asset managers. And one of the early clients that I had uh, was Coronation, who a group of them, so that was Leon Kampfer, Tony Gibson, Louis Stassen, and, and that group, had just broken away from Cyprus in the early 90s. And I quickly realized that I preferred that kind of environment to working in an industrial kind of manufacturing environment. I think part of it was I preferred the air-conditioned office to a noisy, dirty factory. <laughs> but what I really loved was the discussions um, and around investments. And actually, at that stage, I really enjoyed, which is interesting, where where then um, sort of my career has gone, is I also really enjoyed um, the discussion about growing a business because at that stage they were a startup. So that sort of started my interest in asset management. I was also really fortunate at Deloitte. We had an old uh, Scottish partner who was very interested in the markets and he would come into the room where we were all, all the article clerks were sitting and come and ask us our views or challenge us our views on various uh, stock. So a group of us 
started an investment club at Deloitte in Cape Town and just actually reflecting on it is amazing how many senior investment people in the industry originated from there. So just off the top of my head, I think Delphine Govindo was there, Stephen Mildenhall, uh, Sean Pichet, Anton Pillard, Coro, Rob Ullerman at Lorium. So, so, so many, many there. Tell us a bit about that investment club. How did it work? And did you actually invest your own money based on discussions you've had within this club? So I think what we did is we had a few clients of ours who were asset managers and we managed to, I don't know how we did it, but we managed to get them to come and present to us and and they would, I think, discuss a bit about their philosophy, probably talk a little about stocks. And and certainly, I think we started to get a better understanding of our views of investing. And it was at that stage that I started to invest in stocks for the first time. Um, A lot of it probably not very successfully or sensibly, but it was certainly where, where it piqued my interest. Let's go back to your investment journey uh, so what happened after you realized you like investments and you would like to uh, pursue a career within that industry? Yeah, so I then, you know, like many uh, young CAs, went off to London uh, to get a bit of experience and earn some pounds. And then I was fortunate to be offered a job back at what was about to be listed, Nitco Investment Bank, did my CFA, and, and then really, really luckily, I was offered the opportunity to start a multi-manager business in the late 90s. And at that stage, I had very limited real practical experience. So what I did was I I read a huge amount. I asked lots of questions, worked really, really hard. I think made lots of mistakes, but I learned lots about business. I learned lots about investing and I learned a lot about the business of asset management so that at the stage in 2003, when Nedbank took over BOE and then ended up being bailed out uh, by Old Mutual, part of that deal was that Nedbank had to get rid of its asset management. Keystone was uh, got a portion of the single management and a large portion went to Old Mutual. And so uh, those of us who were left were left with like a really, really small manco with I think we had about five billion of assets. We didn't really have our own asset management team and we had an unprofitable business. And I guess it's that sort of burning platform that really makes you sort of think about things and how you want to position yourself and the business. And at that stage, the group of us, I think we had a few realizations. So I realized at that stage that financial conglomerates were not ideally placed for asset management. Uh, to run asset management businesses. Um, I've done quite a lot of research on that. And that at that stage, um, there were a large number of boutiques that had actually started in the in the build-up to the dot-com mm. um, in, in that. And a lot of them were, were unprofitable and not sustainable. Um, and so we had a really simple thesis. And our thesis was that if we could identify really, really good managers who had a sustainable edge in their experience and we could create an environment that allowed them to exploit that edge while at the same time partnering or outsourcing with an organization that does all the rest well. So that could be the administration, the marketing, the distribution, the brand, et cetera. And we were positioning ourselves as that. 
then one could increase the probability of successful outcome for clients. And if you can ever do that, you can always achieve a good outcome for both the manager and ourselves. And, and really, that was the genesis of Best of Breed, which is 20 years ago and, and sort of 400 billion of assets ago. But is it easier to pick a good fund manager than to pick a share, which you believe will, in the long term, uh, offer good returns? I think that they both are they they both are, are not easy jobs. Um, certainly, what our experience and research has shown is that we have been able to identify and select and partner with exceptional managers who've delivered for our clients. So we we have been able to do that. I think we've done that with a combination of studying a lot of history and trying to identify those common characteristics of outperforming managers. And I, and I think very importantly, just to identify before, maybe I go to those characteristics if you'd like to, but when one talks about outperforming managers, you know, a fundamental thing that one needs to acknowledge is that even the best, best managers will experience periods of short-term underperformance. And that, that's such an important thing to realize because if one doesn't acknowledge that, then one's likely um, to not be able to stick through those periods and therefore not benefit from their, their longer-term exceptional performance. So even the best managers underperform, but we do think that there are some, some real common attributes that good managers do have. Let's talk about Nick, the investor. You said following the, your investment club adventure you did start to make a few investments uh, some of them yeah. better than others <laughs> uh, can you remember what was the very very first share you ever bought well i was staying in a digs with a, a friend from another accounting firm and i remember he and i we subscribed to i think it was called the penny stocks newsletter and i'm not sure why we did that i think conceptually we thought that because we didn't have a lot of money to invest at that stage we could buy more shares if the stocks were penny stocks, and therefore, and I think we quite liked the volatility. There was an element of entertainment value whenever you looked in the paper and your your investment had gone up or down, or, or maybe I should call it your speculation. I can't remember what the names of the early shares were, but I know we had some early successes that would have been absolutely complete luck, and which I'm sure we then attributed to our great uh, insight. But fortunately, soon thereafter, I do remember one of our, our picks was uh, LeisureNet or Health and Racket Club, which quite soon went to zero. And uh, I think that was a really, really fortunate, uh, cheap lesson. Uh, I always say to people who get into investing, it's great to lose your money early when it's a small amount. But it gave her a great lesson that you actually need to do your own work, that you need to diversify. And there's a massive difference between investing and speculating and it also just shows that you know when you lose 50 you have to gain 100 but when you lose 100 you've got nothing left so i think we both learned less so just one other really interesting thing is that guy uh, who, who i invest with has i think or well, we both learned a bit but he's gone on to be one of the most successful small cap managers for the past two decades in south africa but when you started out, you at that stage had a, an accounting background. Did you actually look at the financials and do a very detailed top-down analysis to try and calculate future or discounted cash flows and the like? Uh, or did you just go with your gut? No, I think having an accounting background, I've always 
when we started off, I think it was quite a, a rudimentary analysis, um, and there's probably a combination of trying to understand the company and gut. When I got to about 2003, one of the non-exec directors for our company was a guy, Brian Hopkins, who had previously been actually my accounting professor at UCT and then head of research at Adol Mutual. And I asked for him for a list of investment books. And he gave me a long list, which I very diligently worked through. And I think at that stage, I started to get a much better idea of the type of investor that, that I am, which is, I guess, uh, very much uh, a rational, trying to understand the real value of a company, um, understanding that the value that you pay is a very important determinant of your outcome. Um, so, so I guess just understanding who I was as an investor, and that certainly molded the way well, at the early days, I think it was more gut and, and actually I was probably pretty clueless. I think many people start out like that. Uh, I've, I've spoken to many professional investors and the very first share they ever bought was a company they are very familiar with. And I can remember people buying MTN when MTN first listed because they were a, a client. Uh, the same with Woolies and the like. But uh, did your analysis process changed especially in your personal capacity how, how did your approach to investments develop over the the past 20 25 years so i think the big difference probably from chatting to me versus chatting to many of your other guests is as i started to go down the role of the, the best of breed methodology which gave me unbelievable access to many of the most talented experienced hardworking and successful investors. I recognized that doing that kind of thing part-time just was basically playing a loser's game. And broadly, I moved towards saying, I think that I and our business had a skill to be able to identify exceptional managers. And then on top of it, I developed a really strong understanding, which I think has stood me in good stead, that to be financially comfortable or to, 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 to be able to manage one's financial affairs well actually doesn't require a really complex understanding of issues. It requires doing a few simple things correctly. And if one can do that, you're much, much more likely to outperform over the long term. So the, the short answer is uh, for a long time now and, and probably for 20 years, I've done very, very little stock picking and have invested into unit trusts, um, which I think are an incredible vehicle and which I think 99% of people would be better off investing in. So there are many young people who would like to invest, especially in the stock market. I don't want to say it's it's the only avenue to long-term and generational wealth, but they would like to start investing. They would like to be successful. Uh, some of them use uh, discretionary money to do that outside of the pension and RA uh, savings, uh, what advice would you have for somebody who's made the decision and said, listen, I'm going to open an easy equities account 
and I'm going to put in 500 rand a month and I want to start investing. How do you think that person should uh, base their investment decisions on? First of all, what I would say is I think that the starting point is that they should realize is that they are at a, a structural disadvantage to the professionals who are doing it full time. I, I think it is a good thing for people to do that because they feel involved, they can learn, and it's interesting, but I don't think that that's the best approach for most individuals. And again, one looks at stockbroking reports and, and one looks at all the research of those kinds of accounts, and young investors especially tend to get sucked into the momentum and tend not to do as well. But again, I do think that is a good learning curve. So, so my advice to them would be very much to invest in reading uh, some of the great investment books and newsletters out there. I think it's an incredible thing that all of us have access to nowadays is you can easily on the internet get access to the minds of many of the best investors in the world. And then I would invest in things that I understand where I had done the research I would make sure that I have an element of diversification, which is always very difficult when you start, if you're investing in individual stocks. And I'd have a, a very good understanding of uh, what my investment thesis is and what the value of that stock is. Now, all of those things are quite complex to do for an individual starting off, which is, again, why it wouldn't be my preferred route. Let's pursue that a bit further because you're a professional investor and young people listening to this podcast would like to know uh, exactly what shares or industries or sectors you are currently investing in, sectors and companies where you see value. So do you have a personal investment portfolio? And if so, what is in there? My largest single and, and really my only material individual share is, is in Nedbank as a result of my employment. But my investment, personal investment philosophy is 100%. I believe that you need to eat your own cooking. So both myself and my whole senior team, we sign declarations each year that the majority of our discretionary wealth is invested alongside our clients. If it's not a good enough for us, why should it be good enough for our clients? So my largest discretionary investments or nearly all my discretionary investments are with our best of breed partners. Um, I probably, because I get so involved in the due diligence and appointing, probably am invested in more than them that would academically uh, make sense from a diversification perspective. But my biggest allocations at the moment are Global Equity Fund, which is managed by Veritas. It has a uh, invests in a focused portfolio of quality and value. Again, that's very aligned to my philosophy and the global flexible fund managed by First Pacific Advisors. And then for shorter term assets, and again, I think there's a huge advantage to get someone who is looking at the opportunities professionally on a 24-hour basis. Um, I invest in the Negroup Investments Flexible in Income Fund managed by ABAX. What I have done more recently, because I do think if you're asking which sectors I think are currently more attractive, is more recently, I do think that South Africa and global emerging markets, which have both underperformed in the recent past, are looking more attractive. And I've allocated money again. I think it's easier and more sensible 
to do it through funds, but we have a global emerging market manager and his partners uh, based in the UK, and our SA Equity Fund is managed by Lorium. So that's where, where most of my money is invested. So you don't look at individual shares, but many people would like to be more aggressive and take more risk in a personal capacity, especially if it's discretionary money and and, and not long-term savings. Do you think your risk appetite should be different if you manage a part of your portfolio on your own versus uh, giving some to professional investors? Very clear in my mind that, and again, you know, the, the research is just absolutely overwhelming that individuals who are not massively knowledgeable or do this a full-time are at a severe disadvantage relative to the professionals. And even when we see, I mean, an interesting one, because this is one removed, if you look at when investors invest in and out of unit trusts, as an example, they tend to buy after a fund is done well and, and disinvest and then disinvest after it's done poorly, so they miss out. So the, the, the money-weighted return is often different to the average return. But the, the biggest individual investment market in the world, or, or one of the best, is definitely the U.S. Uh, we saw that in the extreme of COVID, I guess in the most extreme would be both Robin Hood and the ARK range of funds. And they, the investor outcome, yes, they were more aggressive. Yes, it was more exciting. But the end investor outcome has been an absolute disaster. And, and that's what, I, you know, when I chat to, to young people, when I chat to my children, is I keep saying that good investing and good investment outcomes are actually doing a few boring things well rather than seeking excitement. Absolutely. If you are keen for excitement, I think it's it's absolutely fine to allocate a portion of your portfolio to identify specific companies mm-hmm. that you think um, are, are well positioned and invest in them. But again, I think people should be realistic around what that actually means. And I don't think that that should be a high percentage of their portfolio. Just lastly, and what has been your worst and best investments ever? Um, well, I, well, I think I told you uh, mm. my worst investment. You can't, can't get much worse than going to zero. I think it's a a very humbling experience. And whenever you're going to go to zero, you just want to hope that it's not with a, a lot of money and that you can recover. Again, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm going to give you a really cliched response, but, uh, and, and this is probably different to a lot of the people that you chat to, but I do think two things. I think probably the best investment anyone can make are actually probably in things outside of financial. So this would be in relationships in education in health i mean i get huge amounts of pleasure from playing sport or watching sport i'm currently addicted to paddle and absolutely love that but on a more direct investment so answering the question more directly i think paying off debt as quickly as possible that's something i got from early lesson i got from from my father compounding in reverse i think is a fantastic investment and something that i did as soon as I could, and then just consistently investing into growth assets. So one that could be shares, uh, it could be, uh, I would suggest, unit trusts, irrespective of the market conditions. So I think when trying to time, I think very few people are able to do that successfully. And then most importantly, to prevent one's emotions then eroding it because all of us, well, and I've seen the most experienced investment managers, we all have emotions. It's not fun to open up your portfolio and it's down 20%. 
but inevitably the best thing to do is just to, to stick it stick out there especially if you have you know the investment has a solid thesis and um, so you yeah. know the short answer is my best investments have been I, I actually made my first I was looking I made my first unit trust investments I think it was 50 rand a month into was something that was then called the Cyphers Prime Select Fund in 1993 and I'm still holding that 20 years later it's now called the Negroup Investments Rainmaker Fund so that's uh, that's been probably my best investment yeah I must say my best investment ever was buying a bicycle and yeah. uh, investing uh-huh. in your health, you shouldn't uh, ignore the, the benefits uh, of, of the lifestyle type of investments. But Nick, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights. <laughs> Pleasure, Ray. Thanks for having me. That was Nick Andrew. He's the head of Net Group Investments. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Ray for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.